it just so annoys me. I'm less concerned about it now, but it used to annoy me a lot of the way that some people have portrayed this as Evelyn's fault, that she somehow was responsible for this whole thing, that she manipulated the two men against each other. And it's self-evidently not the case because these are, these are very, uh, White is very gregarious, very, very sophisticated man about town. He's in his late 40s, early 50s. Harry Thor also has enormous amounts of money. And they're saying that this 16-year-old uh, is manipulating these two men. I mean, that is just so strange, you know, but, but a lot of people have written, have, have given that interpretation that she was the person who was the kind of engine behind the whole thing. And now, testifying for the defense, Miss Evelyn Nesbitt! Hello, gentlemen! of Stanford White. He's the famous architect! Yes, that's right. He put me on a velvet swing and made me wear, well, hardly anything. Ruined at the age of 15, your honor. Then I went and married Mr. Harry Thaw. Eccentric millionaire! Oh! Oh! Harry's a jealous man. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So before we jump into the crime of the century, Evelyn Nesbitt and the murder of Stanford White with our special guest, Simon Batts, and Mary DePippi is going to be part of the interview too. So another true crime in academia meets Ivory Tower Boiler Room interview. I uh, just want to introduce two very special guests who are going to be giving a little intro for this episode. Um, so I am at my parents' house in South Jersey. We just came back from a really nice week vacation in Atlantic City. So I thought, well, why not have my parents say hi to you all? Um, you've never actually heard them on the podcast. And they're also going to give you a little background to Atlantic City and why it's so important for us to learn this history before we dig into Evelyn Nesbitt and her vaudeville circuit of the early 1900s to the 1930s. Um, okay, so first, I'm going to introduce my mom. So, hi, Mom. Introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, I'm Kathy Rimby, Andrew's mom. Okay, and then Dad? David Rimby, Andrew's father. I think also, to give you all the visual, I'm holding a microphone as if I'm on the red carpet, uh, interviewing them both. Okay. So mom, um, I know you really love all of the different history of the casinos and their older hotels, especially, uh, my mom really enjoys resorts and resorts, um, has this long history. It was actually called Haddon Hall. There's a part of resorts that still says Haddon Hall. Um, if you, are looking at resorts and the main entrance look to the right and that's the oldest section and actually that's from the late 1800s so a lot of the hotels um and now their casino counterparts were built in the late 1800s for the gilded age fashionable crowd um manhattan philadelphia society families start to vacation in atlantic city and they needed entertainment 
So where did they go? But the famous steel pier, which is built in the 1890s. So mom, I'd like you to give everyone a little history of what, you know, awaited you at steel pier. Well, at steel pier, they had different type of vaudeville acts and they had um, some famous entertain entertainers uh, that would come. Uh, the other thing that they started that was very unique was the diving horse show and uh, where a rider would, um, they would dive into a, a large tub of water. Um, and this was, like I said, very unique and uh, pretty dangerous for not only the horse, but the rider. Yeah, there's a reason that this is unethical now and not humane. Um, so um, Steel Pier, though, is now an amusement park, amusement themed pier. Um, really amazing observation Ferris wheel. I love that. Um, there's, I think, the rocket that my mom and I have done, which is that little um, contraption where you sit in it and then there's a countdown and you get like a slingshot in the air. So another fun thing, great food options for like your fried carnival food. Okay. So did all this steel pier shout out. Um, but dad, I'm really curious about, you know, these historic hotels. So Let's think of Evelyn Nesbitt. All of you are soon going to learn about her history. So I'm not going to give you where she grew up and why she gets into vaudeville. She becomes a chorus girl. She goes to Broadway. But she starts to tour Atlantic City like Harry Houdini of this period, um, known for tying his hands behind his back and trying to get out of um, uh, water and... Um, he kind of does, I guess, what's called torture um, magic, like where you think, how is he going to survive this? But he does survive, even though he had some injuries. Um, so Evelyn was also, you know, she was dancing, singing, and doing other acts of entertainment. But, you know, what would it have been like um, if you are one of these uh, guests who want to see all of these shows, shows that you would have seen in Manhattan and in Philadelphia, but in the summer, right? You don't want to be in, in Manhattan or Philadelphia if you're of the wealthy socialite class because it's so hot and steamy, right? Like why people go to the shore towns now and have beach houses. Um, so what is really important about the way people dress, the way people looked on the boardwalk when they were going to these different attractions? Well, I've only seen still pictures or a few little videos, but they were dressed to impress as they walked up and down the boardwalk. Actually, they also went on the beach with their Sunday best clothes. Yeah, and what were the women usually holding? Uh, parasol umbrellas uh, and they had all different types of fashionable umbrellas that they were holding yeah so they were trying to impress each other with the summer fashion but no one cared about their tan then right actually they didn't want to get a tan that's why they were holding a parasol so also uh, I've seen a lot of pictures of different hats yeah exactly so also, the boardwalk, for all of you out there, it actually, it's the longest boardwalk, if I believe. Um, it's actually called the world-famous boardwalk. Um, yeah, it's about four to four and a half miles. Um, and uh, the boardwalk was actually created for the hotel guests, so they didn't bring sand into the hotels. So that's why the boardwalk is invented, um, which is why Atlantic City is unique. Because all the hotels, now a lot of casinos, line up to the boardwalk. Um, because a lot of short towns, their boardwalk doesn't necessarily line up to the hotels. So another fun fact. Um, and if you live on Long Island, a lot of the towns are actually further from the beach, the downtowns, um, like the Hamptons, for example. Okay, so... I think the last thing is when we think of Atlantic City, a lot of us from the area think of Miss America. 
Um, and Miss America actually has a tie-in to Steel Pier. So I'm going to ask mom, you know, what happened at Steel Pier with Miss America? That's where they had the, uh, at that time, it was more of a beauty pageant. And um, uh, apparently that's where they started the swimsuit competition was because of the Miss America pageant. And uh, it's changed over time. But um, yeah, that was pretty much it. Yeah. And, you know, we think about the swimsuit competition as really a pivotal history, controversial history now. Um, it's been contested, right? Gretchen Carlson, who I think still chairs Miss America, um, was thinking of new ways to bring in other competitive categories. Um, but the swimsuit competition was so essential because of the beach and the fashion, like my dad mentioned, the fashion of the boardwalk. Well, this was the fashion of, you know, the swimsuit category and the latest trends. I think, though... We also have to remember Steel Pier featured Miss America being crowned a few years too. So there was always this link between entertainment with Steel Pier and the entertainment that happens in Miss America. So the vaudeville circuit that Evelyn Nesbitt starts to go on in Atlantic City has a tie-in to Miss America. Okay, and then Dad, if everyone out there wants to see Miss America, the where they honor Miss America pageant. There's still some memorabilia, memorabilia left in the city. Where would they go to? Well, if you're familiar with Atlantic City, uh, Boardwalk Hall, uh, right across from there, there is a plaza called Kennedy Plaza, and there are different statues uh, that show Miss America crowns, along with the uh, now the outlet shopping at the AC Walk. There is different um, uh, placards uh, on the sidewalks that show the different winners uh, each year of uh, Miss America. Yeah, and we are very fond, especially being from New Jersey, of Kate Schindel. Even though she didn't represent Jersey, she represented Ohio, but whatever. She's still from South Jersey. She actually was born... Oh, Illinois. Sorry, Kate Schindel. <laughs> you actually represented Illinois. Because you went to college there. Yes. If you're listening, Kate. <laughs> but she grew up in Brigantine, which is actually the island next to Atlantic City. And then she, I think, well, doesn't matter. But she was a Jersey Shore person. And then I also love seeing Vanessa Williams's um, plaque. Um, also, if you go into the Claridge, which I love, one of the oldest um, hotels that's still there. Um they actually, I think, have one of the best photos. They have Marilyn Monroe uh, heading, actually, was the leader of the um, Miss America parade. Um, she's in a car and is the Grand Marshal. That's the title. And you can see all of the Gilded Age boardwalk pictures my dad talks about. You can see when Mr. Peanut was there, the shop, um, the saltwater taffy stores. Um, so... Go to the Claridge. Um, and definitely you can see at Ocean Casino Resort, they have so many of the historic photos. Um, a lot of the casinos are doing a much better job of preserving this history and showing it now in their um, artwork and exhibits. So, okay, without further ado, here is the crime of the century, Evelyn Nesbitt and the murder of Stanford White. And thanks to my parents for you know, laying all of this out for you all. So hopefully you head to Atlantic City eventually. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am again joined by Mary DePippi because this is another mm -hmm. true crime in academia collaboration. Um, there's going to be a lot of true crime in this episode. So, you know, um, content warning, a lot of discussion about murder. Um, sexual and, assault. Yes, sexual assault. Thank you, Mary. Um, so 
I am joined with Mary, but also we are joined with the author, Simon Botts, uh, the writer of The Girl on the Velvet Swing, Sex, Murder, and Madness. Whoa, that's a lot of <laughs> topics at once at the dawn of the 20th century. And um, I'm pretty sure, I'm not sure whether, Simon, you're joining us from Philadelphia, New York City, um, but Simon teaches at John Jay College um, in New York City. So, you know, welcome, Simon. We can't wait to dig into this topic with you. Yeah, I'm. thank you for having me. It's very nice to uh, be here. I'm actually in New York City. I do teach at John Jay, as you said. It's part of the City University of New York system, and I teach legal history uh, to students here. Oh, good. Okay. So um, starting from your work at John Jay, which I know specializes in criminal justice, um, did your work with Evelyn Nesbitt stem from teaching at John Jay or did this predate you actually being at the college? Um, it did more or less coincide with my arriving in New York City. I moved to New York from Washington, D.C. I had a job at the National Institutes of Health and History of Medicine. And so I came here about 15 years ago and I was still working on my previous book, which was about a case in Chicago. And as I was finishing up that book, I began thinking about the next book to write. And one of the advantages of writing about um, a case that happens in the city where you're living is of course that you don't have to travel outside to go and find your resources. And so it was very appropriate to do a New York City case uh, while I was living in the city. So. Mm. Okay, okay. Now, how did you stumble upon Evelyn Nesbitt's case? Well, that's a very interesting question, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know the answer. I, um, I mean, Sanford White is kind of a presence still in New York City because you know his firm, Kim Meadham White, is responsible for some of the greatest landmark buildings in the city and, and in fact in the United States and I think one of the ways to, to think about Stanford White and why is he considered to be such an important architect is that he really changed New York City that there were no major buildings in New York before 1900 I mean Grand Central was 1910 uh, Penn Station was around the same date. I think actually Grand Central was 1903 and Penn Station was 1910. So think about it, nothing really existed except residential buildings. And one of the things about New York City that the, as the city was getting more and more prosperous during the Gilded Age, it wanted to rival European capitals like London and Paris and Berlin. Mm. Stanford White comes along and he, he really changes the, the firm, not just the, him as an individual, but the firm, McKim, Might, McKim, Mead and White, they really are responsible for so many buildings. I mean, they built Columbia University, the campus uptown, they built mm. uh, the old Penn Station, they built the old Penn Station. They built the old Madison Square Garden when it was on 26th Street. So the best answer I can give to your question is that really the thought living in your city as a historian, you know the name Stanford White. And, and the more you get into these cases, then you ask yourself, well, has there been a, a previous book written about the case? And the answer in this case was yes they have but then what's the quality of these books how recent have they been and um and if all the answers to those questions are favorable then you go ahead and, and you write the book so yeah. yeah and what did you feel you were really correcting the record about because there's so much to people knowing Evelyn Nesbitt or they've at least kind of think they know she's a vaudeville singer dancer um but I think in a way she like my first encounter was from E.L. Doctorow's Ragtime, as I think most people who know who Evelyn Nesbitt is. And boy, is E.L. Doctorow not accurate to Evelyn Nesbitt's history or the assault. I mean, it's completely um, I'm not sure whether you've seen the musical, Simon, of Ragtime. I haven't, no. OK, but it's presented as if she's having an affair with Stanford White against her husband's wishes. And that's why he kills um, 
that he kills um, Stanford White out of a jealous rage. And that is actually definitely not the historical account. Well, it's complicated. I mean, first of all, let's take a look at it at Evelyn. Um, I think that previous historians have really overstated her significance. All right. You have to think that there were, I mean, New Yorkers in those days, the only entertainment they really had was the theater. Mm -hmm. There was no cinema. There was certainly no internet. There was no television. There was no radio. And so theater was very big in New York City and there were dozens and dozens of theaters. Musical comedies, uh, vaudeville, that was very, very big in New York City. And so there were literally hundreds, perhaps even thousands of chorus girls to single out Evelyn Nesbitt as though she is something special in apart from the murder and apart from her affair with White. I think is kind of a mistake. And I think if, if White had not been murdered, then she, and if she had not married Harry Thor, then she would have just, we would never, we would have, we would know nothing about her. Um, she did, her photograph was in newspapers. She was a model, that's very true. And she was very attractive, but she wasn't particularly talented as an actress and not even really as a dancer. And, um, and so I think that's one thing to think about the, to, to over exact, to exaggerate her ability and her, um, fame is her celebrity is a little bit too much the second thing i mean i think one of the first um things i began to realize that a lot of pre previous people had got wrong was that if you read every single account of this of the uh, interaction between stanford white and evelyn nesbitt they always describe it by the word seduction hmm. And I, uh, I thought to myself, how could you possibly, because the word seduction implies a kind of consensus. It implies a kind of agreement on the part of the woman and the part of the man, at some point at least. And, um, and the facts of the case are, are that this was a rape. There was no, according to her testimony in the trial, Stanford White drugged her, invited her up to the bedroom while, his, while he had arranged for the woman, her mother, Florence to be away in Pittsburgh and drugged her and then raped her while she was unconscious. And, you know, I, to me, there's just no way you can describe that as seduction. The only mm -hmm. word you can use is rape. So all of these previous historians have described the word, the action as, as seduction. Even authors who are women, who would you think were be a little bit more sensitive to the, to the reality, but, um, so that was one thing. Now, the other question is, well, what was the relationship? And it's a very complicated thing. And you have to be really careful when you talk about this. But I think um, she did, despite the fact that she had been raped, there was something that she regarded positive about Sanford White, that he was a very charismatic person. He was very gregarious. He was very protective of the women that he encountered. Um, and I think that kind of that feeling, that positive feeling towards White did stay with Evelyn Nesbitt. Mm. And um, despite the fact that she was married to Harry Thor, she had a kind of positive and negative uh, attitude. And the other thing to remember, of course, is that in a way, Stanford White came along into her life when the family was skating on thin ice, yeah. you know, that the only income they really had was her income as a model or as a chorus girl. At some point that was gonna end. And uh, perhaps in, in when Evelyn got into her twenties and she and her mother are really very thankful that Stanford White comes along and provides them with money, provides them with uh, accommodation and so on and so forth. So, so it's a complicated situation. Yeah, it's also a very sad situation because you look, it's just blatantly, there's a power imbalance. You know, you have this rich guy, like you said, with the money who's coming in and providing for them. And a lot of times I was thinking of like, how could Florence, Evelyn's mother, be okay with this? Be okay that this older man is, you know, giving her teenage daughter, because she was what, I think 15, 16 at the time? 16 you know, giving her all this attention, why isn't she batting an eye about, you know, like causing 
some commotion, you know, raising some questions. But then, like you said, you remember that, you know, they were in this very dire, more dire situation. You know, they were poor. And, you know, if you wanted the money to keep coming in. So in some ways, you know, you you blame her or at least I blame her for not protecting her daughter. But also I can see why that situation was more difficult. Mm. Yes, I think it's difficult for us to understand how perilous life was a hundred and something years ago. I mean, there was no unemployment benefit. There was no uh, medical insurance. There was no kind of social security. I mean, if you lost your income, then you were pretty much on your own. Um, The other thing I think, you know, this book was, my book was published in January 2018. And it was quite extraordinary because because around those two months, December and January, all of this stuff was coming out about the Me Too movement. Mm. Charlie Rose, Mm. Harvey Weinstein, and think about it, you know, for so many years, these men, their behavior was not known, all right? Harvey Weinstein was going around behaving in the way that we know he behaved, which was raping actresses, and yet nobody said anything. There's a certain sort of blindness that is difficult to explain and difficult to understand. And I think part of the explanation is that Florence Nesbitt, the mother, perhaps didn't really realize, you know, didn't, I mean, to us, it seems so obvious. Why would a 47-year-old man, successful, famous, why would he have an interest in a 16-year-old girl? You know, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, middle-aged men don't have much in common with with teenage girls. And and so, you know, the mere fact that White was spending time, so much time with Evelyn Nesbitt, you would think would raise red flags, but Mm. it didn't. And um, that was, and the rape was the outcome. Yeah. I mean, I'm so glad you brought up the Me Too movement and how your, you know, nonfiction book comes out at the time because I was having a lot of I was listening to the audiobook which is really well done um I don't know if you've heard any of it Simon but it's a really good audiobook um okay. I recommend everyone out there if you're an audiobook listener especially with this narrative it really is this slow burn listen but um that I was reminded of a lot of you know, current stories that are still happening. So like, I know you said, like, we have to imagine it's a hundred years ago, but we don't even have to imagine that now. I mean, like, look at musical artists who do this screaming behavior or look at even what we've seen. Like you brought up Harvey Weinstein, but Bill Cosby, I mean, the whole drugging incident. I mean, like, this is something, unfortunately, that is at this root of entertainment. And like, my question is why, like, why is this grooming behavior still tolerated? I mean, and you mentioned people know about it, but they, you know, turn the cheek in a way. And I just, there's like such a psychological question there, which is like, why do we put up with this power imbalance? I mean, like, did you come to a answer to that as you were, you know, doing this investigation? Well, I think there's the, clearly there's a power imbalance between Stanford White, who is very wealthy, he's famous, he's a celebrity, he knows all the right people, and Evelyn Nesbitt, who is really an obscure chorus girl. Mm. And I think what is the key to this case and why it becomes a case is that if she had not married Harry Thor, In 1906, Thor is a millionaire from a Pittsburgh uh, family that owns owns thousands of acres of Pennsylvania coal fields, extremely wealthy. He is Harry Thor, although he has has no education to speak of, he gets um, uh, an annual um, income from his mother of $80,000, which in our terms is about a million dollars a year and that's tax-free because there are no taxes in that time so um if evelyn had not married harry thor then she probably would have just disappeared i mean what is she going to do you know her word against stanford white it just there would have been nothing would have happened you know and um but then because she marries harry thor 
and because Thor has money and because he's part of the aristocracy, if you like, of New York City, um, then Thor becomes, and the other thing to realize about this case is that all of these people, the three people involved were really seeing each other on a kind of regular basis. I mean, going and bumping into each other on the street. And the reason for that is because that particular area of New York City around Madison Square was the fashionable part. But a lot of New York City was much too dangerous to go to. Like you never went downtown unless you were going to Wall Street because that was a slum. You never went to the east side or to the west side because those were the docks mm. and that was where you had a transient population and so these three people were all bump, always bumping into each other they, they lived in a fairly small area of new york city of manhattan the other thing to think about is of course people didn't travel in the way that we travel if you wanted to go on nobody really went on holiday over to the canary islands or to to the Caribbean, you know, that you didn't do that because you didn't have the money and there weren't planes and there wasn't the ability. And so people more or less stayed in the same area that they were living. So Harry Thor bumped into Stanford White from time to time and he became obsessed with the thought that uh, Stanford White had raped his wife. Hmm. And it was that obsession that then, you know, um, drove the whole murder. And, and as, as you know, it described in the book, the three of them are at the same theater performance in Madison Square Garden. And, and Harry Thor uh, takes his revenge by shooting Stanford White in the face so, and kills him immediately. Oof. Now, yeah. Harry Thor is not an innocent character in Evelyn Nesbitt's life either. He also has his own history of bringing in young actresses, from my understanding, and was like rented out a room somewhere and was like whipping them and things like that as well. Because wasn't that a rumor that Stanford White had circulated about him at one point, or at least to try and get Evelyn away from Harry? Uh, no, I, well, I, you're right in some sense. In, in another sense, it's not quite accurate. I don't think Stanford White ever wanted to get Evelyn Nesbitt away from Harry Thorpe. Mm -hmm. um, I think he was, he was very upset that she had married Harry Thorpe because Thorpe was really a lunatic, you know, I mean, just, uh, and, and the question I cannot answer still is why on earth would Evelyn Nesbitt marry Harry Thor, who was really uh, a very dangerous character, uh, really out of control in many, many occasions. Um, and the best answer you can come up with is that she wanted financial security and this marriage with, with a very rich um, man would give her that security. But I still find it puzzling. Um, but... Um, yeah, but Thor himself, you know, he, uh, much later on, he was in court himself, um, well, because of the murder of Stanford White, and, um, and witnesses, a witness came forward to testify that, in fact, Harry Thor rented out rooms in Manhattan, would advertise uh, auditions to actresses, put, put advertisements in the newspapers for actresses to come and audition for him for a play mm. and then when he when the when the actress arrived he would uh lock the doors and then take out his whip and whip them right i mean this is crazy crazy behavior mm -hmm. by any standards and so it's and so what i what i think comes across as well in the book is that the power of these men and Evelyn is so young, right? She's this very young, and this, it just so annoys me. I'm less concerned about it now, but it used to annoy me a lot of the way that some people have portrayed this as Evelyn's fault, that she somehow was responsible for this whole thing, that she manipulated the two men against each other. And it's self-evidently not the case because these are, these are very, uh, White is very gregarious, very, very sophisticated man about town. 
he's in his late 40s, early 50s. Harry Thor also has enormous amounts of money. And they're saying that this 16-year-old uh, is manipulating these two men. I mean, that is just so strange, you know, but, but a lot of people have written, have, have given that interpretation that she was the person who was the kind of engine behind the whole thing. So. Wow. Well, and I mean, I think for the listeners, right, because we want them to, you know, grab your book, The Girl on the Velvet Swing. And like I said, I think the general public, this is only, they only know surface details from pop culture. And I'm not sure if you're watching the Gilded Age HBO series, but Stanford White is actually a very big character. And they're kind of teasing that Evelyn Nesbitt is going to come into the second season, or I think she is. I think she's going to be introduced, and I'm a little concerned um, how she's going to be portrayed. Um, but basically, like what you're saying, Simon, is really shown in the Gilded Age series, which is these fashionable, like old new money families all live in the same area. They really don't travel around Manhattan. That's why they go to Newport. That's why they go to Long Island mansions. They only go to their set areas. And I think that's really important to bring to bear, but also this power imbalance. There's a reason why Stanford White isn't targeting like Edith Wharton, like isn't right. targeting women of a certain social standing. And I think that's what's unfortunately the pattern with all of this grooming behavior, even what we see now, it's this power imbalance. It's, you know, um, sometimes most of the times false promises like i will start your career and it's a tit for tat you know standard textbook case of sexual assault and i mean like just for everyone to recognize like can you tell us simon how deep did this grooming go like it wasn't just evelyn with both of these men like you've opened up about harry but how about stanford white i mean Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Um, that's a very difficult question to answer, of course, because, um, because all of this behavior was hidden mm. and was not publicly discussed. Um, the interesting thing that you did, what you're absolutely right, that Stanford White would never rape the daughter of one of the wealthy 400 families of New York City, all right, because then there would be consequences, because then you could have the father or a relative of the daughter contact the district attorney, uh, try and find a get get witness statements or whatever, you know, and then pursue this in court but of course you know Stanford White is thinking of Evelyn Nesbitt she has no resources to be able to do that and so it's much safer to do that with with an obscure chorus girl or an unknown chorus girl with no resources the other interesting thing of course is that um why is that I mean it's I, I don't watch I don't watch television so much so I haven't watched to watch the Gilded Age and I think I should probably get get watching it you know and I'm, a, I'm also now sharing your concern from what you said about how this is all going to be portrayed in the, portrayed in the second season um but um the one the thing about Stanford White is that why does he have such a positive reputation you know and I thought about this as well and I think the best answer you can come up with is that the first biographies of White started coming out in the 1930s all right mm. His firm, McKim, Mead and White, is still around. They're still designing buildings. Um, I think his son, Lawrence, became a partner of the firm. And people started to write about White's architecture. 
mm. okay, which is undeniably very, very spectacular. I mean, Madison Square Garden, the old Madison Square Garden was an extraordinary building. And the, the money and the resources and the design of that is just fabulous. And there are so many other buildings, the Washington Arch uh, on, Union, on uh, Union Square, um, it goes on and on and on. And so people started writing about the architecture of Stanford White, but then how can you, uh, it's like, it's such a, it would be such a conflict for these historians who are architectural historians to really write, write, write about the rape. And so if they mentioned it at all, they described it as a seduction. All right. And I think that's where it all comes from. And, um, and, uh, and that's the reason why white, it has a positive uh, legacy, I guess you can say. Hmm. It's like, it's a big PR campaign. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how, you know, because these biographies and histories started appearing in the 1930s, and I'm not sure how, how, how conscious they, the authors were of what they were doing, you know, mm. I don't think it was, deli I, I would imagine it was not so much deliberate as kind of not really taking it as seriously as we do now, you know, um, that's the best guess I have about what, what's going on there. But I think it's connected to his status and as an architect, you mm -hmm. don't want to diminish that status by referring to this. I mean, the authors of these 1930s books don't want to diminish his status as an architect by referring to his private life. That would be my best mm -hmm. guess. I wonder if it's kind of similar to the Woody Allen legacy. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, um, I, again, I hesitate to, 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 cast any judgment when I'm not an expert and I don't know, I don't know all the intimate and details, uh, but people have different opinions about that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, here's Woody Allen, one of the best known filmmakers of uh, the last 30, 40 years, you know, and there are these accusations against him by his relatives. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we have a lot of figures like that and that's, yeah. I mean, we could get into a whole discussion about right. like, can you appreciate someone's art and their work, even though, you know, they're like, like, even though, you know, accusations exist and right. yeah, I don't think we have a, we don't have a consensus, um, yeah. you know, but maybe to turn to Evelyn herself, cause I feel like she's so important as a, her agency, especially in this narrative. Like when does Evelyn, you know, die? Like, when did she pass away? Oh, I think that's 19. Uh, that's a tough question. I think, it, I think it's 1967, but I can't wow, okay. swear to that. Yeah, she lived a long life. And um, she actually, in the 19, her, she had one son. Hmm. I can't remember his name now. I should have checked it. But she has <laughs> one son who becomes a, a, an airline pilot and he gets a job out in California as a test pilot. And she moves to California to be with her son and daughter-in-law and they, uh, she has two grandchildren and she spends her life uh, out in California and she's, yes. she's buried in California. And um, she came back into public awareness, I think in 1957, because there was a movie made, which is quite a good movie. Uh, it portrays Stanford White in a very positive light, but it's called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, and it stars Joan Collins as Evelyn Nesbitt. And, um, and, and Evelyn Nesbitt was a consultant on that, on that film. Oh, wow. So, and it's worth watching. Whenever I give a talk on this uh, case, on well, my book, I will show a clip from that movie and it's very impressive, so. Well, and I love Joan Collins as a- Yeah, actress. I always joke that when I was a boy, she was, she was voted the, mo the sexiest woman in the world, so. <laughs> and she's still, I saw her <laughs> recently in American Horror Story. She's, she's yeah. going, um, but oh, the son's name is Russell. Russell. I was just going to say, I thought I, yeah. I saw one of your nice photos. Russell. Yeah. There's this nice photo of her Evelyn with her son. Right. Um, that you include, um, I think at the sea or on the water. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. 
Russell um, actually is not. She, Evelyn, claimed that Russell was the child of Harry Thor, Harry Thor and Evelyn. Now, I my conclusion is that that's not the case. Mm. I don't think that that could have happened because I, um, because when the child was born and would have been conceived, Harry was in the uh, Madawan Asylum and he was mm. confined. And I don't think there would have been the opportunity to have conceived a child. And it's far more likely that the son, Russell, was the child of a newspaper reporter who was friendly with Evelyn and, uh, and the evidence is in the book. So, wow. But he went on to be an airline pilot and he took care of his mother and she lived out her life until I think 1967 or maybe, maybe might have been uh, mm. 1971, I'm not sure. So, yeah. I do have one question. I think I saw it somewhere that Russell or heard somewhere that maybe Russell um, had heard about his mother when she was sent to a woman's school. Because at one point during her, um, time with Stanford White he suggests that she goes to a all-girls school like boarding school somewhere and then she has an appendicitis and I think I remember reading or hearing somewhere that Russell cast speculations as to whether that was actually an appendicitis or possibly an abortion uh, uh yeah I mean that's have- another that's another thing that circulates around and it's it's one of those Things that's um, not difficult, not easy to prove or disprove. But my conclusion is that it was not an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm-hmm. think because it, she was a pupil at a school in Pompton Lakes, which is in Western New Jersey. Mm-hmm. She had been sent there because she wanted to marry um, John Barrymore, who was a very who became a very famous actor probably one of the most famous actors in 20th century American history. But when Evelyn met John Barrymore, he was really a, a complete failure. You know, he has, in every single way, he was an alcoholic, um, probably taking drugs. And so, uh, so that Florence wanted to get her away from New York City. But um, no, I don't think it was an abortion. And, and part of the evidence for that is that she was treated by a physician who was very, very prominent, who was one of the leading doctors in the city. He was a professor at uh, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which is Columbia's medical school. And I, don't, I can't see that he would have had anything to have done with an abortion because of course abortion was illegal mm-hmm. and it would, have been, it would have been a very severe punishment for a doctor who was caught carrying out an abortion. Um, the other thing I might mention is that if Stanford White, a lot of people react to this case by saying, oh, well, you know, that's the way they did things in those days, you know, that as though that was to somehow excuse it, you know, it was in the past, it was 100 years ago, it's a different era. That's absolutely not true. Number one, the age of consent, well, the age of consent was raised to 18 and about 1895, it had previous, in New York State, it had previously been 10. Hmm. But the state legislature raised it to 18 after pressure from women's organizations. And then the state legislature began passing laws against rape. And they, they were very severe that if you even, even so much as you had sex with someone who was younger than 18, that was automatically rape. Which is, which is, you know, far higher bar than we have now in 2022. And then if you were, if you were convicted of rape, the sentence would, would have been 20 years, 20, 20 years at least in the penitentiary, which was Sing Sing Prison. Well, if Stanford White had been prosecuted for rape and sentenced to 20 years in Sing Sing Prison, that would effectively have been a death sentence because there would have been no parole and because Sing Sing was a very unpleasant place to be. It was a, it was a place where the, where the uh, custodians had really impunity mm. in terms of how they treated the prisoners. And it was a very, very violent, unpleasant prison. And so, uh, so basically the point is that there, are, there were laws in those days against rape. It was treated seriously. The penalties were very severe. And uh, so it, there wasn't, it wasn't this kind of laissez-faire attitude 
of the past, you know, a hundred years ago towards that crime. Yeah. And I think something about Evelyn that really fascinates me is, I mean, you mentioned that, like, trying to figure out whether we would have still been talking about her if there wasn't uh-huh. this crime of the century popularized in the news cycle. Um, I mean, but something I do notice is she, she literally is balancing not on just her swing, right? Which is, I think, everyone's image of her as the vaudeville performer, but she's literally balancing social classes. She's balancing gender politics. She's balancing, I would assume, race politics with performers and different religions. Like she knew Jewish performers. She knew Harry Houdini, I'm pretty sure. Um, And I think that's actually a really fascinating, fascinating part is it's not there aren't a lot of figures like her who can actually go back and forth among these communities. So like, you know, how did you process that aspect of her? Well, I think I would focus that more closely. Uh, You're absolutely right in what you've described. I think I would focus that more closely on the, uh, on her position between a very wealthy person Mm. who has connections to the elite of New York society. And also Harry Thorpe, who's really an outsider, still wealthy, but an outsider. And one of the things that I looked at, that I discovered, that I think was a surprise to me, was, and it raises a question about which I, I feel that some people have taken the wrong way. Um, that when she goes into court, the district attorney, by the way, is very, very clever, very sharp. Jerome, he was one of the, he was a very uh, well-known person in New York City. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he wanted to prosecute Harry Thor for the murder. Mm-hmm. Now, the defense case rests entirely on Evelyn's testimony that she has been raped, all right? And the more graphic the rape, the better it is for the defense because the jury is listening to this. And, and in a way, what Harry Thor is coming in as a defense is saying, my action was justified. This man raped my wife, all right? It, 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 it happened a few years before the marriage, but that was the argument. Here's this man going around, here's this man, Stanford White, going around New York City raping young girls by killing him didn't I do the world a favor and that's literally what Harry Thor says you know now the district attorney comes in and says and and has Evelyn on the witness stand and he's asking her okay well when did this rape actually happen and this is all in the transcript it's there's nothing invented about this it's all in the transcript and she can't answer that question she can't tell him the day she can't tell him the month she can't tell him what the weather was like when this happened and his point is well look this was a very traumatic event in your life and yet you're telling us that you can't remember when it happened and he's what he's doing is he's casting he's casting doubt on her account of the rape now i don't want to deny a victim's truth or, or veracity, all I'm doing is reporting what the district attorney comes up with in his questions. And my, my thought was, well, look, here is this 21-year-old. She was 21 years old. And think about how you were as 21, right? Shy, uh, you're in a courtroom, you have no knowledge of, the, of legal proceedings. It's the first time you've been in a courtroom. You have no real allies, right? except the defense lawyers who want you to go into court and present the most graphic account of the rape possible, because that's going to help their client, Harry Thor, get off the death sentence. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That she may, she, the rape may very well have happened. I'm not, I'm not, I, I think it did. She produced a very accurate account. But on the other hand, at the same time, you've got these defense lawyers who are the best lawyers in the United States who are extremely experienced, who know what they're doing, and they're saying to Evelyn, you have got to go onto the witness stand, 
and you've got to tell this rape in the most graphic way you possibly can okay mm. and for a historian there's really no way to know what happened because all of the discussion between Evelyn and the defense are all you know that no one publishes them no one writes an account of them and and the fascinating thing about this case is that it all depends upon one person Evelyn Nesbitt the weight of everything is on her shoulders okay now she never for as long as she lives disowns the rape she claims that it always always for the rest of her life but um i'm sorry i forgot the point i was going to make oh i'm so uh, um but she she never disowns it but she refuses in later court proceedings mm to describe it she says no i've been used enough you used me before you got me into court and you got me to testify about this and everything was on my shoulders and and of course when she admits rape she is regarded by society as a pariah it really harms her reputation uh, in a way that again we can't really understand you know if someone is if someone now in 2022 is raped, then they're blameless, of course. Why would any blame attach to them? But back a hundred and something years ago, there was something, a social stigma attached to, to, to a rape victim, okay? And so what she says later in her life is, no, I'm coming into court, you subpoenaed me, and I have to be in court, but I'm not mm -hmm. gonna tell you about that rape because you're using me, you're manipulating me, and I'm not gonna be a party to that. So what I would say in conclusion is that this is extremely complicated. It's yeah. very difficult to get to the, real, the, the the final, final word of truth in this case. So that's all yeah. I'll say. Yeah, about well, and it seems like she kind of recognized that she was being used for a media narrative, and that was, um, maybe not just the media, but she was being misinterpreted or, yeah, I could see all of that. And, you know, I not, think, yeah. Yeah, this is another angle to it, of course, that, you know, the newspapers, there were 14 daily newspapers in New York City at the time. And all of them were very, very, they were all very good newspapers that reported in detail on a lot of these events. And for those newspapers, of course, this was like gold, you know, because it was sensational, because it was about New York characters. And so they were selling, you know, tons and tons of copies. So this made great sales for them. And again, you know, the fact, I mean, her life actually subsequent to all of this was kind of sad, you know, in the way that she then divorced Harry Thor, she married again, but that marriage didn't last very long. And she was a very, always in a very precarious financial position. She never really, she never, Harry Thor, when he died, I think in the 1940s, never left her any money. And if it hadn't have been for her son, Russell, you know, well, how would she have ended up? I mean, it's, it's not pleasant to think about it. But the thing that, and then she had to go to, she had to get a living um, in Vaudeville. She had to give a, get a living as a cabaret hostess in Atlantic City. And all of these, she was under the control of the men who owned the theaters, who owned the casinos, owned the cabarets, and she was always at, her, at their mercy. She had no independent way of making a living. And again, you know, it, 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 that, that reflects, of course, the reality of women back in 1900, you know, that education was largely, they were largely excluded from a meaningful mm -hmm. education. Um, she had no profession to fall back on. And, um, and so she lived out her life scraping a living and and there was a gradual decline because as she got older people no longer wanted to see her on stage or to hear her as a, as a cabaret hostess and so I have uh, and I hope this comes across at the end of the book I have a tremendous feeling for Evelyn and, and her life yeah. but that life of course is a reflection of how uh, of how vulnerable women were a hundred years ago mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean as we wrap up there's just so much to this and this is why everyone needs to like dig through and pour through like every fact that you bring to this case um and all the history the historiography that you provide because i mean 
I'd like to believe what you say about people believing victims now, but I don't see it. Uh Um, Especially we've seen what happens when Dr. Christine Blasey Ford came to the Senate and look at how she was torn apart. I think, unfortunately, victims are subject to the public opinion. And what did they call that? The court of public opinion. And I feel like this sensationalism of that is like starts to take away the agency of the victim. And I mean, it saddens me. I wish we believed people who went through tragic, you know, traumatic situations, but. But you will agree with me that it's become a lot better in the last three or four years. I mean, in the newspaper today, I'm reading about this, um, the the Larry Nassar case who was in Michigan State, right? And the mere fact that these girls now do have a voice, can speak out, and and people like that are prosecuted is a very, very positive thing, you know, and that's only happened within the last few years. Yeah, you're right. I think, like, if there is um, something that is positive is that victims feel that they're empowered to actually bring this to the court. Right. Where with Evelyn Nesbitt, if the murder didn't happen, would she have actually brought that to court or was there she even infrastructure? She wouldn't no. have been able to, no. No, so yeah, you're right. That is the- He would have buried her. Yeah, well, that and also, I don't even know if the court would have found her testimony reliable because of the power imbalance, unfortunately. And, but you're right, there has been a lot of progress. I just, yeah, I think right now we're in a- um, it's more about believing, right? Believing victims and, you know, we're going through our own (laughs) journey with that. But I mean, I'm so appreciative of you coming on Simon to talk about this case because it's so, there's so many layers that are relevant to what we're going through today in our own culture and climate. Yeah. Well, yes. And um, I'm going to be looking at the Gilded Age now. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm curious about your opinion. And, um, you know, and I really feel like there needs to be an Evelyn Nesbitt, like some kind of, um, you know, biopic film that actually provides all of the narrative that you bring to bear that like, isn't just like, the naive girl on the velvet swing that unfortunately has taken hold in our you know, public or, sedu- or you know, the, yes. the idea that some 16 year old seduced a 40 something year old man. Yeah. 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 Well, well, and you know, I'll hold up your book, but you, you know, that the girl on the velvet swing, um, you really bring to bear, you know, all of Evelyn's um, psychology, her, you try to provide as much as possible from the historic sources, which I know are tough to try to bring her own words to life, but you do, you know, bring her in photographs and I, you know, want to commend you. Thank you so much, Simon, for bringing this out to the public. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. I'm very appreciative that you've taken the time and the trouble to interview me. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thanks to our listeners out there. I know this is an intense discussion, but, you know, we bring all different topics here. Um, okay. And now I have to watch that Joan Collins film because I've never seen it. Um, but yeah, well, thank you, Simon. And thanks, Mary, for joining as the co-host. Okay. Uh, thank yes, you, Mary, thank you. as well. Yes, yes. yes thank, thank you, you, Simon. Yes. Bye, Simon. Okay. Bye-bye Thank now. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia. I'm Andrew Rimby, the Executive Director. Our team includes Mary DePippi, our Chief Contributor, Nicole Arguello, our Marketing Assistant, and Kimberly Dallas, our Editor. Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes come out on Monday, and sometimes I'm joined by a guest co-host. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And here's Mary. 
Hello, everyone. I am the host of True Crime and Academia. Do not forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. And coming soon, there will be a Twitter also at True Crime and Academia. Now, if you're like me, you like to have bonus episodes. I love extra content, don't you? So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Not only do you have access to our video interviews, but you will also be able to access never before seen bonus episodes. So like I said, you can't, we don't release them anywhere else. You can only get those on Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today. And don't forget to listen to ivory tower boiler room on Mondays and true crime and academia on Tuesdays.